My guest for the evening does not believe beauty can save painting and sees institutional schooling as highly harmful to culture. He paints alongside his father at the Nerdrum studio, continuing the Renaissance workshop tradition. Erdogan Nerdrum, welcome to the Cave of Apelles. Thank you very much. So <clears throat> tonight I wanted to talk to you about what signifies uh, how figurative painting is taught at the Nerdrum studio and how that differs from the, the regular schooling when it comes to figurative painting. Um, we'll talk about the importance of painting self-portraits and also I want to hear your thoughts about what's lacking generally in uh, classical figurative painting uh, today and of course what can be done for the, the um, stature, the, the status of figurative painting. Yeah. But uh, tell us first, uh, what is a normal day at the Nerdrum studio? Uh, well, actually, uh, it has become more and more normalized after the years. Okay. So uh, we actually have a sort of a schedule finally after <laughs> 30 years. <laughs> and uh, uh, it begins with uh, <clears throat> it begins uh, with coffee in the studio of my father at 11, where we have an hour of discussion. Uh, we try to uh, we try to uh, uh, encourage. That's what I'm looking for. We try to encourage the students to talk about right. painting. So th that's why we have this hour. But usually it's odd talking from 11 to 12. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the rest of the day is painting. Right. Yes. How does it work then? I mean, um, for example, when I do courses, of course, people uh, pay me and I teach. I'm a, really a teacher. But this is not how it works at the Nerdroom studio. No, no. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it's... Uh, there's no monetary payment, right. <clears throat> so uh, as you know, and um, and uh, but uh, some people have come there and said, "Is it really free?" And and uh, we try to tell them instantly, "No, no, 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 it's not free. You have to stretch canvases for Mr. Nerdroom. You have to prepare his canvases. You have to do other other uh, house uh, housework, house related work. Yeah, modeling. Yeah, modeling, of yeah. course. Yeah, so it's not free, but mm. it's." Uh, you pay with uh, the resources that you have as a painter. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's what I've been thinking about too, uh, being there for, for some years, um, that you could potentially go there and not learn too much if you do not invest your energy yeah, yeah, into it's, it. It's, <clears throat> it's a highly, uh, it's, it's like the old uh, university standard. There's uh, so much freedom that uh, if you choose not to learn anything, it's a waste. Right, right. right. So. Uh -huh. Okay. And what is your position there? I mean... <coughs> well, I'm... I'm um, uh, with my mother, I go through the uh, applications. Right. So we, we take the first draft before Ob chooses the final ones, mm. so that he doesn't have to look through all the... Uh, Lost causes. No, I'm joking. It's not a, it's not a lost cause, but uh, those who are not ready, we tell them you're not ready. Right, and, uh, right. And we send them to you right. <laughs> or to uh, Sebastian <laughs> Salvo or it depends on where they are in the world. Right. Yeah. And you paint yourself. Yes. What? Oh, you want me to <laughs> say something about it? Uh, yes, please. Yes, uh, <clears throat> it was... Uh, I'm not a child prodigy or anything. Um, 
I was, I think I was 18 when I first took up a brush. Uh -huh. And that was uh, not because of any uh, artsy cliche that I feel that I have to, do <laughs> to express myself or I've drawn as far as I can remember. Uh, I hate that line. Uh -huh. It comes in every application. Uh -huh. uh, no, but I, uh, I just thought quite rationally that it would be quite stupid if none of the children of Mr. Nerd will learn how to paint from it. <laughs> so that's why I did it. Right. Yes. So, and then, then we're talking about uh, making a self-portrait. Yeah. I mean, this is one thing that is really important uh, at the Nerd Room, uh, studio. And what is the advantage of doing that? Well, I think that, uh, as others said often, that the uh, the one who has made the most self-portraits in history is probably Leonardo da Vinci. And I think the, the reason why he did it and the major uh, thing you can get out of it is that when you draw or paint people, uh, faces, you tend to make mistakes, uh, primarily proportionally, and those mistakes are derived from your own face. Right. If you have a long nose, you will make other people's noses longer. If you right. have a, yeah, etc. Uh, so making self-portraits, you have to fix those things right. because it will be so clear. And uh, by learning to fix your own face, you will learn how to fix everything. Right. I, I, <clears throat> I believe he also talks about people who have uh, short fingers need to draw people who have long fingers to correct their own mistakes. Yes, that too. Yeah. <laughs> of it's, of uh, the bodies. it's opposite logic, but it's the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. right. Well, yeah. but my father has also often encouraged students to try to paint like uh, the painter they look like, like in their face. So right. there was one student here that looked a little bit like El Greco and he was struggling and then Odd said, just paint like El Greco. You look like him anyways, <laughs> right? And it worked. Uh, oh. no. It's not like we're not going to seek any originality because uh, why would you do that? Uh, but you have to, it's smart to be aware uh -huh. of who you are and uh, your, uh, your, uh, your mistakes or uh, how should I say, it, to be aware of your originality, to use that word. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that reminds me of, um, I guess we'll talk more, more about that, but, but it reminds me of uh, something a, a Norwegian folk musician said about originality. Yeah, uh, defining it as the, the mistakes you make as you imitate your master. Yes. And I think that's, that puts but it where it belongs. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. It's right. the mistakes you do. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, and, and this is also what I, I see in, um, uh, you know, when I teach courses, people normally say, oh, isn't it exciting that, you know, there's so many different uh, uh, expressions here or portraits. Like, ex typically I would use <clears throat> more sort of uh, work of your father's uh, reproductions, obviously, uh, from the 80s, where it was more clear, more sculptural, mm -hmm. you might say. And if I give all the students that same task, everybody shall paint this portrait. Afterwards, they will say, oh, isn't it wonderful that there are so many different paintings here? And I always mm -hmm. tell them, no, they should all be the same. Because if you manage to do it exactly the same, you will be exactly as yes. good. Yeah. Yes. Well, well, actually, I, I wouldn't agree uh, so far because uh, a copy will yeah. never be better than the original. Yeah. It can be almost the same, but uh, it cannot improve it. That's why imitare is to be preferred 
imitation. Yeah. Then you can improve. Imitate the living yeah. model and not... Yeah, but uh, about the originality. You know, I can understand that some people get uh, caught up with Rembrandt, for example, and say, oh, I love those things about Rembrandt that make him Rembrandt. Yeah. I can understand that because it's like, it's like when you fall in love. You uh, start to like their... Uh, something about them that is unique to them, which is yeah. a problem. Or I, yeah. there was a girl once uh, who said to me that when a, uh, she said, I don't, I don't know if it's true, but she said that if you know, when a girl starts to like a man, she would very much like to see him do disgusting things, like taking his finger up his nose or something like that. It's the best thing. <laughs> and 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 again, I can under, <laughs> I can understand that that you love something or that you get a sort of affection for something that is uniquely remembered. But before that, you have to do it. You have to be a very good painter. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to deny that aspect of it. Huh. But that um, point where you find Rembrandt as a person attractive, that can only come when after you've first become a very good impersonal painter. Right. And then, and then of course, you're talking about that late rough manner of painting. I mean, I've, I've seen... And if you don't know the basics before you go there, you might easily just go off the cliff. Yes, yes. I, I remember vividly um, one, one earlier student when, when uh, your father really started to be really conscious about Titian. Uh, not that he wasn't before, but, but really conscious about it. Uh, this younger man said that, well, that, this means that I have 30 years advantage on you. Because I've discovered, I've discovered him at a younger age. Yes. So he thought he could just, you know, sk uh, skip the line. Well, yeah, yeah. And, well. and of all, all, when it comes to Rembrandt also, um, uh, painters that, when they don't know the basics, they see what is typical to Rembrandt and they think that those are the uh, anatomical errors, for example. I mean, if you look at mm. the late, late uh, uh, prodigal son. Yes. That person standing there is completely insane when it comes to the anatomy. But I mean, that's not what you should copy, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the same. It's the, it's the greatness of a painting that makes it great. It's not its faults. Right. But, huh. but to turn it back in, it's, it's not the faults either which make it great. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you might, one must be very careful of that. And uh, yeah. people who have painted for a short time, there's thousands of things they don't see. Mm. They just have a they just have a feeling that this is very good, but they yeah. don't understand all of it. Mm. Why it's so good? It's like uh, uh, one of my friends who was sculpting uh, down in uh, Carrara. He was he was sculpting a butt of a woman, and he didn't understand what is it. I can't get the butt round enough. He made it rounder and rounder, yeah. and then the teacher, who's um, uh, Arne Merland, he's a sculptor in Bergen. He said to him, "Well, you have to let it go in here, you know, yeah. on over the butt." Yeah. And then he did that, and then suddenly it looks round. Yeah. So, so he had the feeling that something was wrong. He felt that something is wrong here because it doesn't look round enough, but he didn't yeah. know the answer. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. So, um, okay, so we're talking about, uh, about making a self-portrait. And I mean, obviously, practical reasons, that's the model you have right in front of you, yeah. free model. Um, but I'm thinking also something that, that uh, I think your father talked about when I was a student, the necessity or the, the advantage of uh, using yourself as a model in different roles. Mm -hmm. So you can use the self-portrait to test out different characters and different, different psychologies, I guess. Mm. Yes, yes, uh, that's very important because otherwise you get... Uh, 
a dozen of very serious self-portraits. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like that, like that. It, uh, that's uh, people have a tendency to become very serious when they make self-portraits uh -huh. and very actually quite grumpy. Uh -huh. So yeah, to put yourself in roles is very important. Right. To make it less uh, personal. Uh -huh. mm. yeah, if you dig, if you dig into yourself, you find just uh, travesty. So <laughs> to put yourself in role is. Uh, yeah, and uh, it can help you to become a storyteller in painting too, to mm. do that. Mm. Right, so so um, also then, when it comes to the actual everyday uh, situation at the Nerdrum studio, um, the students then would be painting themselves uh, on their own work, just choose whatever they would like to do themselves. Yes, well, well, we have actually started giving them tasks to start with a self-portrait. Okay. And then as a second task, make a narrative painting. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but apart from that, they can choose whatever, uh, how the narrative painting is done. And, mm. uh, but we, we start with that because we believe that this, uh, that is something that we can offer them that other places can't. Mm -hmm. Since, uh, since Alts production is all about narrative painting. Yeah. And I mean, in, in many of these other schools, uh, they graduate and they are yeah. told by the teachers because they've learned to make forms and light and shape and all of that. And then the teachers say, now go out and make whatever you want to make. Right. It's almost like that. Right. And that's so irresponsible. You're teaching them to paint and you just let them go out. It's like, it's like a bird mother throwing the bird kids down on the, <laughs> on the ground. They have no idea what they're going to do, and then they are very easily taken over by the, by the art virus. Uh -huh. Yeah, and one thing that for sure is that when when you're at the Nerdrum Studio, you're basically in you know in a real work situation. It's yes. not it's not school yeah. you know uh, uh, lessons in this or lessons in that. It goes all day long, right? Yes, it's uh, it's something it's something in between. It's mm -hmm. uh. Uh, it's uh, more an environment and I mean Odd started right. with this when he was 18 years old He got his first yeah. student when he was 18 years old and it's not like uh, many people have this view that Oh, you either make it as a painter or you have to become a teacher, yeah. uh, but actually uh, Odd becoming a teacher is helpful for him. Yeah, because he always has to be looked up up to by the student he has to hold a certain standard. He has to be better. Yes. <laughs> so it's not, it's not only a service to the students. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I, actually, I forgot to mention, uh, we occasionally, maybe four times a week, have drawing evenings, mm. uh, one hour, and then we com compete. Yeah. Odd together with the students. Right. So there's no... Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, no dis there's no professor sitting inside yeah. a room where we yeah. can't see him and where we... Yeah. No, no, the, he's, he's there and he's competing with us, uh -huh. so. Yeah, and, and so, so that, that, that's an inter interesting point. Uh, the, the importance of comparing. Yeah. When you've sat there and drawn for an hour, and perhaps one day I'm very happy with my drawing. It looks really good. Yeah. And then suddenly when I place it next to odds, it's not good anymore. <laughs> I, re I remember he said... Um, or, well, he, he recounted the story <clears throat> about a Swedish student and, uh, and uh, your father said to him that, uh, well, you can try something like in the words of, uh, you can train a little bit more now and you will be even better that's, than Sorn. 
but you have to remember all those that come after you. Yes. <laughs> that, that you will never see. <laughs> so you have to really compete not just with what is behind you, but also with, with what is coming that you don't, don't know. Yes, I think that's a joke from our father's side. Well, yeah, no, no, but, yes. it, but it illustrates the whole, the whole spatial thinking, right? That you're, you're not, uh, I mean, that's what I see uh, often as a problem that <clears throat> even for a lot of uh, figure painters, uh, you know, the, the classics is 19th century. Yeah. That's sort of where they stop. Yeah. But I've never, never experienced your father in that way, that, that you, know, you stick to that and that's it. Yes, well, there's a general conception that uh, before the Enlightenment period, people were just stupid. Yeah. That's, uh, that's widespread. It's, just, yeah. it's not just in culture, but it's... Uh, well, actually, in culture, it's a little bit better because they talk about Rembrandt and Velasquez, but... Uh, but for example, in terms of painting technique, they will not go further back than the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also your father has this ability to, um, which is connected with that, of seeing quality in quite surprising places. I yes. mean, I, I mean, he introduced me, to, for example, to Bonnard. Yeah. Pierre, uh, Pierre Bonnard, uh, the French painter, and you would immediately think, oh, well, he's a, you know, sort of a semi do modernist or whatever but that was interesting i saw an exhibition with him together with matisse and bonard was immediately an old master <laughs> yeah uh, no but it's uh it's he's very humble uh, my father uh when he views uh, works and because because many people think that think that uh, visual literacy is a language that you learn within months like, yeah. all right now i know that uh. da vinci is one of the best and uh. and that uh Munk and uh, Bonnard and Gauguin, they are not as good <laughs> as the old masters. And, mm. and it's, a, it's a very, it's a slave mentality. Right. You learn that this painter is better than this painter. And people actually think like this. And uh, uh, it was a very funny comment actually by uh, the Norwegian chess player Magnus Carlsen. He was, he was asked, who is the greatest chess player in your opinion of all time? And he said, he said, and this is this is my father's standpoint too. That there's no greatest player; they're just the greatest games, right? Or greatest right. moments, or right? And then and then he said, so if I were to pick out the greatest player at a certain moment, it would have to be me three years ago. <laughs> and uh, yes, it's the same here. So yeah. so maybe Bonar is not on the same level as Rembrandt in terms of quantity of work, but he has some work which is better than some of Rembrandt's work, yeah. some of his early works. And, yeah. and there, are, there is some freshman, freshman to Gauguin, which Ribera will never be close to. Right. right. So uh, yes, it's an extreme humble relationship to painting hmm. that uh, you can learn from many surprising places. Hmm. I think the first time I came uh, to visit your father at, at the studio, he was talking about the white hermaphrodite. And he was uh, talking about that he had solved the composition the night before. The, the, the man uh, uh, peeking, looking at the, at the hermaphrodite in, in the corner there. And he, I remember he, he was talking about uh, the four years he had spent on that painting. 
And you know that's quite different from speaking of of, of seeing the 19th century as the olden days. Uh, and I know a lot of painters have very much respect for this quick way of painting, mm. sergeant style. Um, so these are quite quite different uh, attitudes to painting. Yes, it's uh, it's they view it as the gymnastics. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, not like. Uh, well, it reminds me of that. Who was that Greek painter? You know, you don't have the the, the paintings, so I, I I always mix the names. I think it was Nicomachus. Nicomachus was the been quick one, yes. The Aristotle's son, right? Uh, yes. Well, someone believes it that he was. His well, son, anyways, yeah. he, he brags about having painted uh, work really quick, and I guess it was Suxus or so who said, "Yeah, I can see that." <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. Um, and I guess this has been... been uh, and there, there's another story which is flattering in his favor that he was visiting uh, or he was going to paint this king and he was just relaxing and drinking <laughs> all the days. And I mean, the, 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 the deadline was coming to an end and the king said, you know, I'm going to kill you <laughs> if you don't finish the painting. <laughs> and then don't worry. And then like two days before he started yeah. painting and yeah. the king was very happy with it. But yeah. I think it just shows you that, uh, that the kings haven't uh, the developed vision. Uh, a colleague has. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, speaking of uh, what well, we're talking about then, uh, this expression, kill your darlings. Yeah. That whatever you, whatever is necessary to give, give a story to the painting is what you'll do. Yes, and I mean, uh, it's, it's, like it, it's like a chess game because uh, my father has a, very, he has a very clear idea about how the painting is going to be done. Yeah. But then he ends up changing it. Right. right. And it's like a chess game. You have to have a very clear tactic. Yeah. And suddenly you have to break that tactic and mm. make a new one. Mm. And so it's... Uh, and then you can think, oh my God, why did I bother to make a, such a plan in the beginning? But right. you can't break that either. Yeah. So it, it's like Caravaggio did the same with the Matthew Mart martyrdom amazing. in Rome. I mean, you see the x-rays and you have, you have the accusations that he used to photograph. My God. Well, and then you see the x-ray where it's, it's a completely different yeah. composition and he, it, he's used like months on it in, in total. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you don't use a photo uh, fo or camera obscura and then just move figures around. Then you've decided it, yeah. it in beforehand. Uh, I'm also thinking about this photo I saw of your father in front of two men guiding one man. This was, if, could it be 94 or something? Anyways, these, pe these people are standing one on this side and one on this side, sort of pressure, pressuring the guy in the middle, you know, so who has to take a decision or whatever. But in the photo, this, the one on either side, they're pointing out. So, you know, go this way or go this way. So the energy is go, goes, going out of the painting. And then your father has, has then taking the arms in like that, so the guy in the middle is just really pressured in between mm. those two. Yes, and I mean, very few painters have this mentality. Yeah. Uh, even, even students by art, they come and they, they are making a uh, composition. They can make a composition and they have, have a small drawing and they've rooted it up or make, made a grid. Mm. Then they put it up and then when I s propose them to change something, take away a figure, they, they <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I have planned this. Look, yeah. <laughs> look at the yeah. drawing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And it's really strange because because most of them they are not. It's not. We're not talking about commissions. Mm. It's not like they have a deadline, or uh, mm. 
that their um, the person commission the person commissioning who doesn't exist uh, wants the painting in a certain way, but they are actually they are actually making a deadline on themselves. Yeah. In a way, and and they are saying to themselves, no, this is not going to be that much work. And then I guess we're talking about uh, something that that um, I guess I mentioned that to Per Lindgren. Uh, the problem is not that you have a recipe or a, a, uh, a progression, you know, certain progression in how you work. But <clears throat> if you don't mix that with empirical studies of re reality, and if you're not prepared then to change things to better the composition, then that becomes a problem. That you, that you just follow a recipe and from yes, yes. A to Z. Z and and we have many examples of this in mm. uh, painting history of a decadent, uh, decadent periods of painting, yeah. which is uh, where they fall into a style right. and they don't uh, use their eyes anymore. Mm. And don't, uh, they don't have this relationship to painting that it must be improved, improved, improved. Right. You have the, uh, the time between Michelangelo and Caravaggio right. was such a time. Of course, Caravaggio comes and says that uh, you have to use your, your eyes. You can't just copy another yeah, painter. I mean, they, they criticize him for having to use models. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so quite bad times. You could say that he saved painting almost. Right. And uh, of course, you have a, you have a la later uh, uh, period of time uh, from in the 19th century in France, for example, the Saloon, yeah. which was a very decadent time as well. Right. Can you name me one painter from that, from that period in the Saloon in Paris? Um, not off the top of my head. Uh, but I mean, it, of course, you have these famous names and a lot of them from Eastern Europe also. But which ones but, are you talking about? Uh, well, Piloty. What? Piloty. You know Piloty? No. And uh, whom else? Well, I should know. Well, okay. But anyways, this is actually a place where art history has got it right in a way where they sense. celebrate the Impressionists, because at least the Impressionists started to paint directly from life again. Right, right. And more, right. at least. Uh. There was a freshman, the freshness, uh. which, because uh, all this, uh, I mean, the Greeks would have hated the yeah. Greek painting of the saloons in Paris, where mm. they celebrate Zeus and Aphrodite uh, in very symbolic, dry, uh, representative ways. Right. Right. They would so, have hated it. So, uh, so this is, uh, uh, well, if you talk about, about this academic painting, then uh, this is a, uh, an example of where you follow a recipe, but the result is not a success. Because th there is a certain progress that you learn at the Nerdrum Studio. I mean, it's not like, completely arbitrary. Well, actually, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a recipe like that. We we no. all we all have a standard of what we want. Yeah. But getting there, it's not. Uh, so it's not. The, it's not a direct recipe. We're not talking about first year. You only draw. Then no, no, you, not like that. Yeah. No. You go right into it. Yes. Mm. Yes. But uh, I'm, you can fall into a style, and that is very dangerous. Right. Uh, and this sounds very artistic. Uh, but it actually isn't because art itself has become a style after a time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, that's what art is, right? Yes. When you paint shall be paint on canvas, it's removed from the empirical study of reality. Yeah. And that, that's a style. Yes, and, and also a style is, is, uh, 
uh, I mean, if, if you're concerned with style, then uh, the storytelling has got into the background. Mm. And that is what keeps the painting up. Mm. You know, uh, way too many painters today, uh, classical figurative painters, they paint for other painters. Right. And that's a huge mistake uh, because uh, why would you do that? <laughs> Just paint for other painters. Uh, so actually some of those painters could actually become better painters by thinking more about uh, sale yeah. <laughs> because then they think about non-painters too. Yeah. And what makes painting valuable for non-painters is the storytelling. Right. You can't, you can't persuade ordinary people, you, know, you have to start to like <laughs> the painting technique, look yeah. at this brushstroke yeah. here. You can't do that. Uh, and when I think about then how your father teaches or does not teach. Um, very often it's, um, I mean, this is my impression, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that in a lot of other, uh, you know, institutional schools or, but also uh, different ateliers perhaps, uh, there's an extreme focus on technique alone, more or less. Yes. Um, when I think of your father, uh, it's not so much uh, uh, technical questions as there's a, a there's um, invitation for the students to come in and judge what he's doing. What could be? How can this? Yes, yes, be? yes. Uh, I even have a story from a friend who who was just visiting. I mean, he's not a student, and then suddenly Odd asks him, "Then rarely met before. Yeah. What do you think can be improved there?" And he gets yeah. such a shock. Yeah. Shouldn't he know that himself? Why is he asking me? I know nothing about painting. And, and uh, yes, yeah. it's to, um, because, and that is, uh, Sebastian Salve, which has also been here on this show, is also very clever to do that. Because they understand that, of course, they see more than non-painters, but they can become blind mm. by looking at the work. And then they, a person who's a non-painter can yeah. actually see something. Yeah. Okay, so... Um in the introduction, I talked about <clears throat> how uh, the Nerdum Studio is continuing the Renaissance workshop shop, uh, tradition. What are the similarities then between how painting was taught in the Renaissance and how it is taught at the Nerdum Studio? Well, uh, it, it's very similar. Uh, painting, you can, say, you can say it hasn't been... When was, when was the first painting school made that was uh, it was probably the 18th century uh, in Germany somewhere I, but uh, for a long time painting was purely uh, it was like being a blacksmith more or less mm. just mm. a little bit more divine mm. uh, as in the Renaissance so no schooling you would immediately you would uh, be put under a master and uh, for example Verrocchio and Leonardo Leonardo mm. would paint together with other students in Verrocchio's painting mm. and that uh, was the time when Verrocchio famously quit painting right. because of Leonardo's uh, angel mm. and that is uh, so what my father is doing with the Nerdum Studio is that he's continuing painting as a, as a trade in the, yeah. in the disguise of a trade. Mm. I mean, the market is not like that today. No. But, but, uh, but still, he... Uh, well, it, it prepares you for the actual situation after of you... Of working on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so and that you haven't uh, left the school bench, so to say. And, right. 
were lost. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why I wanted to to oppose um, or contrast <clears throat> the Nerdum Studio with the more I, well we were speaking about the academic uh, way of painting, and of course that that comes with uh, it comes in the 17th century uh, where you you have the French Academy mm -hmm. with uh, uh, Charles Le Brun leading this academy, and of course he he has this. Um, That's right, yes. Yeah, he has these recipes. You were talking about that yes, when we were yes. preparing. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the list of uh, uh, 12 facial expressions right. that you would use in a painting. Yeah. And it's quite uh, funny because, <laughs> because you can see the sheet of these different faces and then you look at Lebrun's actual paintings and they're actually there. <laughs> <laughs> taken out of this brochure of facial expressions. Right. Very strange. I don't know quite what to say about it, but I would say it's a little bit narrow with 12 expressions. Okay. Especially because uh, great paintings try, of course, to display the catharsis of a story. And the catharsis of a story is much more complex than a simple face, now I'm afraid, or now I'm sad, or now I'm happy. <laughs> the catharsis is a very complicated hmm. moment where right. the hero has not just uh, been cleansed physically, but also in terms of his personal travel. Yeah. And then you need uh, a double face. Right. So that that very funny. <laughs> it's almost it's almost art in a way, because it becomes a parody. Right. Of how to be sad and how to be angry. But then I was thinking uh, when you mentioned that. Uh, I was thinking about something in me and uh, Martin Romberg were talking about. The difference between romanticism and music with really grand emotions and typical, your typical, speaking of self-portraits, your mm. typical romantic self-portrait, which is more or less expressionless. Oh my God. And I was thinking then, well, if, uh, and this goes for, for a lot of, of uh, uh, painters today too, you know, the title has some long story to it, and then the face is just <laughs> completely flat. So you could say that that would be an improvement if they would have those yeah. 12 expressions <laughs> generally in their work, right? Yes, no, I, yeah, well, I mean, that's because of beauty that they do that. Beauty? Yes, also. that they make these empty expressions. Yeah, because Explain. beauty teaches, beauty is uh, a very, I mean, a, I, lo I love beautiful things. I, mean, I right. buy antiquities, for example. I'm a great fan of beauty, and I think that I think that um, Roger Scruton, Sir Roger Scruton, is right when he says that we have lost beauty because we we act like if it doesn't matter. Right. But beauty is a word with no postal address, so to say. With no what? Postal address. Right. I mean, I mean, there are two, so I'm, I'm not against beauty, but I'm against beauty as a sort of philosophy to fix our crisis. Uh -huh. And, there are, and there are, I think there are two main arguments I have against that. One is historical, one is purely an analysis of the world, because you could make the case that an abstract painting can be beautiful. Yeah. What does beautiful mean? It means uh, visually pleasing. Yeah. That's what it means. Nothing more than that. Right. So, so how can you say, for example, that the Da Vinci is more beautiful than, uh, than a square of colors, dark colors? Right. How can you do that? So there's no... And I just want to finish. My second one is historical. My second uh, 
uh, opinion about beauty is, uh, is that that was the leading philosophy behind the creation of paintings and sculptures in the 19th century, early 19th century, beauty. Yeah. yeah. And we know where it ended. Yeah. It ended with uh, modernism. So what is lacking in beauty then, as a term, as a foundation? Well, it's uh, it's a little bit uh, like... I mean, we're talking uh, about the philosophical term, not just the, the adjective. Yes, but it's a little bit like Lutheranism. No, you could make the case that, uh, because if you study history, as you know, uh, uh, polytheistic religions are often more rich culturally than uh -huh. monotheistic. And you could make the case that the Catholic Church was a sort of polytheistic, oh, yeah, yeah. with all its focus on the saints and the... Uh, uh, evangelist, no? um, yeah, well, the disciples or the evangelists. Yeah. Yes, yes, and um, and then Lutheranism comes, and that is a sort of it's it's a one word that should describe, and it's one God and He's good. That's mm. it. That's yeah. beauty. Yeah, it is something that is aesthetically pleasing, and uh, then you have this. Yeah, then you have this people arguing over oh, it's beauty, subjective is beauty, objective, and it's a completely ridiculous conversation. The real question we should ask is, is beauty enough? Right. Because it's not enough. I'm thinking about then that beauty, this, you know, <clears throat> which is that it comes from, which is an aesthetical term coming from, you know, originating in the 18th century. Uh, beauty has a strong element of, of um, being passive. Passivity is a very good word for it, and uh, I usually say if, if, if an Aristotelian and a Platonist are arguing, yeah. uh, you know, about uh, the, the, what you say, the world of ideas and the world of reality or anything like that, you know, the one can say, I'm, I'm the one who's telling the truth, or the other one can say, I'm the one telling the truth. Yeah. But I only have one thing to say about that, the Platonists are passive. Yeah. Right. Or the people who believes in genius. It's a passive belief. Why? It's not necessarily wrong, but it's passive. Yeah, because it tell, tell us about genius then. Yeah, because the idea of a preborn talent doesn't encourage us so to do something. You're, it's you're talking about now, uh, the, the, this is also basically an 18th century term, yeah. genius with a big G, who uh, doesn't need schooling or shouldn't have uh, schooling at all. Because that would, would just uh, drag down your yeah, and that's the whole that's the whole uh, propaganda of this time. Every time yeah. there comes out a movie about a painter yeah. from history or anything like that, yeah. we've seen how he's a little bit special and he knows something the other one doesn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is preborn. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's the whole and, narrative. And that that's fundamentally different from well, speaking of the difference between the Nerdroom Studio and general, let's say, academic training then. Uh, yeah, they believe in beauty because yeah, uh, yeah, but, but they believe in just form and light and shape. Right. Because and they are, they are uh, among, in the beauty discussion, they are on the objective beauty line. Right. And, and, the nerds do, and, and of course the depressionists, as I like to call them, they are on the subjective beauty side. But the Nerdroom Studio is outside the beauty question. Because it's very easy to dismantle beauty. As yeah. we've seen in the history, you know, you say, oh, beauty is the ideal. You know, we have one God in aesthetics that's beautiful. And of course, then a, a painter comes along, or actually multiple painters, and say, why not ugly? Yeah. Why is not that good enough? 
Because right? it's one thing. And then you yeah. get the the modernism, you know, yeah. with the ugliness or the, it can be anything, right? Yeah. But then they forget that it's not beauty and it's not ugly that makes a piece great. It's the combination. Right. Well, right. This why, is... why would you watch a movie where everything is beautiful? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you see a boy running yeah. out of a of a cabin and he's yeah. so happy and yeah. then two hours later he's still happy he's fishing now <laughs> <laughs> why would you do that so the point is not to make beautiful things or ugly things the point is the combination right right a beautiful uh, boy who experiences ugly things uh, and of course then you have catharsis and all right <laughs> and is it aristotle who um, i um, wonder where i read that Speaking of what you're saying now, and I wanted to say some things about genius, but but to sticking to to beauty because that's quite fundamental. The the, the problem with the term um, uh, was it him or was it Campbell? Point in any ways is that if you have a story where everything is you know the the let's say the hero is really a superhero and can do anything, then you don't relate to him. It's completely remote. You you cannot yeah. identify with it uh, at all. A very little at yeah. least. It's a very difficult genre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have you have had movies which successfully have made the superhero genre, like the Yojimbo. That's a superhero genre. Oh, but okay. you have to well, break yeah. him down at a certain yeah. point. Yeah. But of course, a dude with a problem movie will always be stronger, in my opinion, yeah. because that is something we can relate to. A yeah. man who's pushed into something he doesn't really quite understand. Right. Right. I, I want to pull it back to Luther here because, okay. because the one God, the one salvating God, yeah. that was the beginning of the end for Christianity. And the beauty so. and the term, That should be the essence of Christianity. The, no. And the term, no, as an institution, it was the beginning of the end. Okay. I'm not saying it contradicts the philosophy, but I'm saying it, and it's the, sa it's the same with beauty, that when beauty becomes the leading philosophy in aesthetics, that's the beginning of the end for beauty, ironically. And what would you say then that, that what does beauty replace? What was before? What was before well, beauty? I think that for a long time before they got beauty, they were a little bit confused themselves <laughs> uh, about what they were doing with the whole thing. Mm. Uh, at least the 1700s was, early 1700s, it's a very dark spot in painting history. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if we look back a little bit, at least we can see that uh, uh, you had the Calvinism in the Netherlands, 1500, 1600, under Rembrandt. So there were no commissions from the church anymore. Mm. So you could say that the painting market changed already then. Mm. But luckily, painting had such a status that private people ordered it. Right. Uh, and uh, I mean, that's, that hasn't happened today. That wouldn't happen right. today. It doesn't have that status. So why they come up with this term beauty is, I, I'm not sure if I've ever heard someone explain that very well, why this beauty comes now. But I guess that it has something to do with that uh, the Christendom is losing its grip. Uh -huh. That you need to replace it. You need to make a sort of non-religious word for something which is good. Right. And then beauty comes. 
So like, like the beauty of God or something like that? Well, I mean, before that, most of the commissions in Europe would be to paint sceneries from the Bible. Right. Or at certain times of the Renaissance, paint from the Greek myths. But when there are no commissions anymore, when the whole northern Europe has become Lutheran. Yeah. I mean, you can see it in the churches in Scandinavia. They, they might be beautiful on the outside, but the insides are very white. Right. And very boring, yeah. very depressing. There's a little funny story about that. In my hometown, the church was finished in uh, uh, the mid-1700s. Yes. Outside, it's just brick. But then the guy uh, who, who was in charge of it died. And so the guy who was running the mines, this was a mining, con uh, yeah. silver mines, uh, he took over. So on the inside, you have marble, uh, you know, wood painted like marble, sculptures and, and ceiling painting. Yeah. And of course, very provincial, but still really <laughs> quite beautiful. I mean, it's a Rococo yeah. church, provincial Rococo church. So, but so then, what was what was the... What was the official, uh, um, shall we say, the first one who died? He was, was he in any ways uh, a more important figure than the second one? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, so, so when you don't get the experts, then you can get something, <laughs> something real here. And, oh, okay, so this, this goes back to, um, I have to remember this thing about genius, but I can't resist. Uh, this goes back to the whole idea of institutional schooling then. The belief in speaking of <laughs> the church in <laughs> back home, speaking yes. of experts, the choice of experts, and what happens if you don't have experts? Shouldn't there be an expertless society in order for painting to really flourish again? There should be many experts, I think. I guess we're talking about different types of experts. Now. Yes, yes, yes. Because I'm, I'm talking about how the this is so strange. This is at least at least one thing that happens in the 18th century. Uh, how the expert is not lo no longer the man who knows the discipline, but the man who studies it theoretically and doesn't know how to execute mm. a painting. I mean, in the Renaissance, again, that is, again, that is the just, era just, when the intellectuals are are coming. Yeah. 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 Then I'm thinking about uh, Edvard Munch. And you know the story uh, also about the first director of the National Gallery in Norway. Jens Thies. Yeah. Tell yes. us about that. Yes, that, uh, that is, you could say, is the ideal of yeah. an art historian or uh, whatever you want to call it, a uh, painting intellectual or, or a collector. Yeah. Because he, uh, he, he wanted to become a painter and a drawer himself. Yeah. And he was drawing together with Munch, and they were drawing a nude. And he saw when they were finished, Munch had this beautiful nude. He was such a master with form. I think he's one of the greatest when it comes to understanding of forms who has ever lived, actually. But he saw it and he looked at himself and he decided, no, I will not become a painter. Mm. But so he had this love for painting. He gave it up and he, he loved it so much. Mm. And when he became the director of the National Museum, mm. he got all the best monk paintings. Right. And that is because he had a love for it. It's like the greatest conductors, the, uh, the greatest classical conductors have been composers themselves. Right. But they had to conduct because they couldn't live out of composing or they didn't 
feel like they could manage to compose what they were dreaming about, like Furtwängler, for example, William Furtwängler. Yeah, he was a composer, or Bernstein. Yeah, and you've been talking about uh, um, several times uh, uh, lately about how this changed when you got again institutions teaching yes. uh, people to, to be directors yes uh, when you have a when you have today's conductors who have gone to conducting some sort school. of conducting school <laughs> three or four years yeah. and you expect them to conduct on the same levels as composers forget it right they don't have the the love for it and i but it's it's okay at least they are following the notes right. <laughs> they are just performers it's even worse in the paintings oh. with art historians because the art historians they choose what is a good painting or not right because because no, I, no matter if we like it or not painting is in the domain of the art right there is yeah. no other market for paintings today than the art market right and so they, the art historians who have never painted, never wanted to painted, paint, and who has this entire narrative that you of course know about, that history is not circled, history is a progression where each genius has pulled us a step forward, and they decide your fate as a painter, of course it crashes. Yeah. So what then should be done with these institutions should we just should they be shut down um, it depends on your strategy if you it depends on whether you want to uh, do you want to uh, reform art or do you want to bring up an alternative right and kitsch is an alternative it's an attempt to an alternative and those two uh, strategies are very different. Uh, I don't think there's one answer to this, but but that's a very difficult question. I'm thinking, uh, well, there's, there are several things. I'm thinking of um, one thing is, <coughs> is um, the Canadian philosopher Jordan Peterson talking about that uh, the universities uh, that they, the funding should be cu cut at least 20%, so they have to really focus on using that for, for the actual job that they should be performing. Um, and your father has also suggested that there should be, uh, this is a very concrete suggestion, mm. that in the universities there should be two uh, different uh, fields. So will you Yeah, on the art history, on the art history subject, yeah, that there should be an Aristotelian and a Kantian. Right. Explain that a bit more so people really understand what that, that is about. Yes, yes. Uh, well, and that is one of the attempts to reform art, as I right. call it. Okay. Because then you go into the arts domain, yeah. because they get their education at the university, and you try to reform it. Mm -hmm. And that attempt is to, I mean, the major part of philosophy of art today is, is 18th century German idealism, uh, as you know, and uh, with Kant in the, in the center, and wants to replace it. And, and Kant is a, a firm believer in beauty, so it has right. that whole 
uh, fundament. Right. Try to describe beauty and the genius. The genius as the creator of the beautiful. And Aristotle, of course, on the other hand, doesn't believe in in genius. Uh, quite frankly, doesn't believe in beauty either. I think <laughs> it's a quite uh, alien term to him. He believes in recognition and storytelling. Yeah. Uh, and so, and those two are the most polarized views of painting, sculpture, visual languages. So the, the idea is to implement that into art school education. Right. But uh, I'm, it's an, it's an idea. I'm a little bit skeptical because even though, even though you were to make it in practice, I think most, it is so deep within people's minds that most people who would apply to the school would be counting already. Right. And I guess there's the, there's the, shall we say, danger that uh, if you would have such an um, Aristotelian department, the same thing could happen that as with figurative departments in different art academies, mm. they, they are just swallowed up and then just uh, disappear. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's... Uh, it's quite understandable because there is only the art market mm. today mm. for painting. There is no other market available for you, except mm. maybe as a decorator. Maybe yeah. there is a market for mm. that. And so, so then what do you do concretely? If, you, if I understand you correctly, you don't think that is the path you should, where you should devote your energy, trying to reform the institutions? Um, no, uh, well, no, you, you have to do whatever you can because we are in a very lousy situation. Right. But if we are talking about the future, let's say the future collectors. Yeah. I would say that the most important thing you can teach collectors to do. Uh, we have actually have a story there with uh, Tretyakov in Russia. He was a very smart man because he got Ilya Repin as an advisor. Right. M most art collectors today, they have an uh, art uh, history educated person to be their uh, advisor. Yeah. And he, of course, has this entire ideology. Maybe he helps him with investing in things that will rise in price, but mostly I think it's ideology. Right. But Tretyakov had Ilya Repin, and that was a very smart suggestion. Because, and that is the same message I would give to collectors today, that choose a painter as an advisor. Yeah. And accept from that, buy what you want, because the painter can see whether it is of high quality or not, like formal things, mm. or whether it is actually a good painting. And that is the best assurance that it will still be of value in yeah. 200, 400 years. Right. It's actually the only thing we can hold on to. Is it well painted? Right. Related to that, the, the problem of thinking, this is also a sort of a passive way of, of behaving. The problem of thinking that the so-called arts or culture has to be supported. Hmm. That it should not stand on its own as someone. I mean, if you go back to the speaking of the, the 19th century, uh, Dostoevsky having to write uh, what he called like, like um, finish one chapter for the, for the next deadline. 
for this this magazine that they had. Yes. He can just just sit there and be feel creativity or whatever. He had to work like hell and be and finish it. So the, the, I mean that's also a, a the, the mental state, right? And I think that also refers to how your father thinks that it's not about being supported, but <laughs> but about learning to work in a way that actually you know helps you when you're you're yeah. painting on your on your own. Yeah, that's a slave mentality many people have. Right. That it's I need support, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's a, a slave mentality, and uh, of course the same people criticize. Uh, criticize capitalism or criticize the industrial revolution right uh, which really has nothing nothing to do with the what problem. would they criticize these things for no I, what's your point I've never really understood uh, for, but for it's a but it's a it's a position of of uh, you're saying oh I'm I'm in this situation because of the times yeah and I need help and uh, you you don't create a thriving culture that way by getting help i mean no. the culture will classical culture will fall more and more and more down the more and more that it becomes something you need to save right if you're saying we need the government to help this you're saying that we need <laughs> we need you to help us and what do you spend government money on yeah. you spend it on things that can't live on its own right so you're initially saying that classical culture is of so little worth that it can't survive on its own. That's what you're saying. It's a, yeah, well, you're, you're thinking about it as a museum object. Then. Yeah. So what about, okay, so if we're talking about, there, there are different uh, aspects <clears throat> of how the situation, the current situation can be improved. You've mentioned the collectors. Uh, very quite concrete advice that whom they should trust as advisors uh, to to raise the level and and uh, also open up a market. Um, but then there's also the way generally that uh, a figurative painter thinks about the whole situation, and and um, also there's the aspect of uh, when you're talking about collectors. I'm thinking about how the the um, uh, middle class or the bourgeoisie in the 19th century s were educated people. They supported painters for their education and, and sort of felt what is described as a responsibility mm. to support these things. But then I guess, well, you're back into supporting, uh, uh, you know, painting yes. or whatever. Yes, it's not a good word, but as you mentioned with the bourgeoisie, the the and that is one place where people misunderstand they think that popularity culture has taken over and no uh, you you've probably heard that argument before yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, that's actually, the problem that stands in our way <laughs> yes yeah. yes yeah american culture and all yeah. that uh, nonsense but the, in reality the problem the popular culture has always been there i mean the yeah. commoners have always done their little strange things mm. But the, the, the actual problem is that the bourgeoisie haven't been able to keep their own culture intact. Right. They have sinking down to the level of the commoners. They, they How, well, what do you do then? How could you raise that level? Well, that's a difficult question again, but... Uh, 
how do you keep a class intact like that? Well, firstly, I mean, you've had many physical obstacles in the 20th century with the high taxes. Yeah. That has sort of pushed the bourgeoisie down and the noble down to its knees. So, and you had, uh, you had many old families who, who invested in painting and sculpture, which of course are all gone because they got this resistance amongst other things. But what, uh, but there is another aspect to it. And that is that, uh, and this goes back to the 1700s with beauty is that we have lost an official mythology. And, right. and, and that is the back to the beauty problem that, uh, that painting should just be beautiful. <clears throat> that of course ends up uh, with yes, anything can be beautiful or anything can be of value. Yeah. But in the old days, you had the mythology, you had the standard, you had it was in the everyday language. Yeah. Every day, no matter what argument you made, you made a, ref, a reference to some myth. Either it was in Europe with the Bible, it was Jonas and the whale one day, or it was uh, yeah, Mary from Britannia the other day, where. <laughs> Jesus uh, very amusingly say to the, his disciples, the poor will always be here, but I'm, I'm going to die in a few days. <laughs> uh, so it was in the everyday language. It right. was, um, it was a superstructure. It was right. part of the, should we say, it was part of the society's infrastructure. Right. Odd has, he's the only painter today who I think has made something that could become uh, a beacon, uh, a sort of direction for painters. Right. He's the only one. I don't think even Andrew White did it. Andrew no. White was a very good painter, but to build upon him, no, I don't think so. He's a strange sort of hybrid because he, you, you could perhaps de de describe him as a naturalist, but still it's, he manages to imbue you know, seemingly everyday scenes with with uh, some kind of drama or, or some kind of story, even though it's, but of course, it is absolutely not Baroque in, in any sense of the term. I, I would say that uh, the good thing about religion, historically, has been that it has been an attempt to describe something universal. Yeah. Both, uh, both uh, Christendom, Jewish, and and uh, the Norse myths, the uh, Greek myths, they have tried to describe something universal, something timeless. Right. They haven't always succeeded. Uh, but that is what Odd's building come on. So you could say that Odd is a religious painter. In that sense. Oh, I mean, in the sense of uh, going to the core of... Very important things. Right. That are always important. Right. So coming back to this idea of copying your father then, or trying mm. to copy. Mm. This is also a <clears throat> uh, uh, favorite criticism of uh, his students, that they are all like him. Mm. Of course, if they would be, that would be a world historically exceptional. Well, it used, to be, <laughs> it used to be the same criticism against the blacks, that they were all stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were all the same. Um, right, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I think, I, I'm thinking about something I said to a journalist once, 
Well, it's not difficult to be original compared to Obnerdrum. You just paint worse pictures than he does. Mm. Yeah. And I don't, th don't think people think about that generally, how extremely difficult it is to be completely unoriginal. I mean... I, well, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but to get to the point where you're so unoriginal that it becomes good, yeah. it's very difficult, but not impossible. Right. Yeah. But of course, the journalist didn't. Uh, you, you don't expect that the journalist understood you, right? No. No. Well, no. well, it, well it, the quote didn't make it to the newspaper, so obviously, obviously there was something there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, but uh, it's uh, most people know very little about art, but the whole narrative is glued yeah. into their head from very early age. Right. I remember uh, in, in uh, children's school, I was. Uh, it was a. Uh, assignment to write about why Picasso is a great artist that was the assignment right and uh, I actually that was the time when I thought art was I thought that Leonardo and Caravaggio were artists yeah actually even though my father had coined the kitchen many years earlier <laughs> but uh, so I refused to do the assignment because I thought it was too loaded okay yeah right that must have been after the the incident where you and uh, your brother come to to your father with postcards of Matisse, I think it was, and you wanted the <laughs> postcards. <laughs> yes, because it reminded us of our drawings. We were uh, f four or five years old. Hey, you and your brother were thoroughly educated in judging <laughs> quality in painting from very early on. You have to tell that story. Because what story? Your father... Would oh, yeah, ask yeah, yeah, you yeah, yes. which one? We, which one was which painting was better? Uh, one versus one, and we would win a small coin yeah. every time we got it right. Right. Yeah. So we were educated, but it was the familiarity to Matisse. <laughs> so, and that well, that's what art is. That's uh, what uh, art is: uh, infantilization of culture. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. So, and uh, and of course, art is has no, um, it is very anti-elitistic. Art? Yes. How? On, on objectively, it's very anti-elitistic. What do you mean by you that? You create a system where none is best. It's a sort of a lottery. Uh -huh, okay, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it's, uh, <clears throat> I tend to think that democracy might be a good idea in politics, but not in, <laughs> in painting. <laughs> Yes, I'm not sh quite sure about the pre prior either. Oh, okay, okay. Yes, yeah, well, because you, as, as, as you know, I mean, democracy hasn't proved to create many great paintings. Right. So. Right. Uh, There's one, one thing um, I remember you have been talking about. And uh, so we're sort of all the time circling around this, the concept of, well, the Northern Studio, the Renaissance Workshop tradition, that's the personal relation to the the teacher or the the, the master, yeah. and then the the official institution. You know, the the uh, initial academy, French Academy, in, in was founded in well 1648, yeah. but at least from the 1660s early then on, it becomes. Um, you know, actually, it was founded. In a, out of a, some sort of a quarrel between 
the uh, the painters guild and the painters favored by the king mm. so it was given to the painters favored by the king as a privilege you know as a status in terms of status yes. and of course it allowed the the state uh, state regime to uh, clearly educate the painters in how they should make propaganda for the state mm. so obviously that's a yes that's that's a big problem of right. the, of the, the that, schools yes, that's why i was asking you should should one and well i don't know if if you should how you should actually go about bringing the institutions down or at least just let them crumble uh, should that be an alternative um, to let the schools crumble yes well that might be an idea well anything that can get rid of the school i'm in favor of quite frankly uh actually the whole university is, is quite interesting the whole uh the whole creation of the university which yeah. began in the 12th 11th 12th century i think uh, it's the bologna university which is recognized as the first university right in the 11th century and it's interesting because first the catholic church makes knowledge more or less illegal <laughs> when they take over when the christian takes over europe you know they it's, yeah. it becomes illegal to uh, to manufacture toilets and all sorts of nonsense yes what yeah uh, yes i i don't have the specifics for this but they forgot to make toilets because because it became so awkward and so socially wrong to use toilets no shit. Yes, that's that's the end <laughs> of the toilet. So so, and then you've had many hundred years of what we call the dark ages, mm. and when the university opens again, it grows out of the same institution that destroyed the knowledge of the Roman Empire, right. the church. And so you have a very, the university starts up with a, a doctor's degree, a bachelor's degree, and that is very typical uh, concerning that it has grown up from the church yeah that you have immediately this thing that the faith comes in or that the the hierarchy of that this one is a believer this one is not comes yeah. in in a strange way that this yeah. one has a doctor degree this one yeah. doesn't this one has a bachelor's this doesn't and that is completely different from the ancient uh, academy of plato or Lyceum by aristotle there, there was never any talk about any degrees, right? And uh, it's the same for the situation of painting in the Renaissance. There was no degrees among painters, right? In that sense, yeah. You came, you studied with a master, and you worked alongside with him. You painted on his paintings, and eventually, you could stand on your own feet. Yeah, yeah. And so then you could get so. So many strange people like Filippo Lippi, for example, <laughs> uh, that you could never get if painting as a profession had grown out of the church. Right. And <clears throat> then there's also the, the difference between believing in experts, I mean, where the theoreticians are yes. experts, and the ability to see the quality in the work of someone who does not have his papers in order. Yes, and that is actually, this, which is so fantastic with the Medici. Because, uh, and the Medici is a family that fascinates people and that's, uh, that is very understandable because what they did, for example, with Brunelleschi, here you have a guy who's not part of any 
architectural guild. And Cosimo Medici sees him and understands that this man is quite smart. And yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. When, you, this, uh, when a person is able to see that, that the, the person doesn't belong to any institutions, right. no one likes him, especially. You can see that he's clever. That takes a brilliant mind. Right. And he goes to Rome, studies the Pantheon, and he comes back and he finds the solution. And then famously it was that uh, they wouldn't give the answer to him uh, before he showed it to them. And he said, and he had to trick them, so he said, will you give the assignment to me if I can make an egg stand? And they tried with an egg themselves, so this doesn't work. Okay, you'll get the assignment if you can get an egg to stand. And then he took an egg and he crushed it. <laughs> In the bottom, yeah, you yeah, see? Yeah. Here it stands. And they said, you have cheated us. That's too obvious. And then he says, well, it's going to be obvious with the Duomo also. Right, right, right. And he did it. Yeah. But actually during the construction of it, uh, the Medici, was, there were, um, uh, Cosmo was put into prison and he was exiled. And Brunelleschi lost his work because he was not a member of the architectural guild. Right. I'm when the other guys took over, the uh, Albizzi. Right. I'm thinking also of uh, Pericles of ancient Athens. There's one quote which is so fantastic where he talks about, uh, from that quote at least, you get an, you get an idea of, of Athens as sort of the American dream. Mm. You know, a person can come here from low stature, uh, but if he is, he, if he is, he is knowledgeable, he can rise up to a very high position. Yeah. So it's judged on being able to see the individual talent. And this, I think my, <clears throat> my favorite story about this, um, because it's so obvious, it shows it's so obvious, is, is the idea of, uh, of what happened to uh, Illy Repin. Even though he was not of noble descent, he could rise up yeah. and be, uh, you know. Uh, and he said it himself. He was so grateful yeah. that he was a painter and that painters could rise if they were clever. Yeah. Because it was not like that in the military at the time. Right. Of right. course, today, now, uh, the military is one of the few places where it is like that. Yeah. Where you can uh, really grow. Yeah. I mean, all the generals have started as a private. Right, right, right. Uh, so... It changes which, with the disciplines. Yeah. At least that has changed with painting because painting has lost all its structure. Mm. It has become uh, a hostage to art. Mm. Yeah. And then you have the whole idea of how society or how consensus today views this. Because undeniably, and I, I talked to Perlingram about this, undeniably there is uh, quite a bit of social pressure already when you're a uh, figurative painter, because then you're old-fashioned and that's not in vogue. Um, mm. But especially if you are uh, somehow related, uh, no, I mean connected uh, to your father as a student or someone inspired by his work. Yes, yes. A famous line is, I've heard it from students that they are told by people they know at home that oh, it's good that you study with Nerdrum, but don't eat everything if it's you. Right. And that, of course, means don't eat anything if it's you. Right. 
And then uh, what, uh, I, what's I, your answer to that? Well, I like the I like the students who are open about it and tells me about it because then we can talk about it. Right. Uh, it's uh, better than those who don't say anything. Right. Uh, well, my answer to that is, of course, uh, the question. My question is, why do they say that? And why do they not say that when you go to the university? It's good right. that you go to the university, but don't eat everything they feed you. You'll yeah. never hear that if you go to the university. Right. Is this connected with this respect for author uh, authority? I mean, when you have your papers in order, you know, the... I mean, it's the, the same as Brunelleschi, that yeah. you have this figure who is outside of the establishment and he is a master. And yeah. that offends them deeply. Right. Yeah. That it is possible. Of course, it's always the case. Yeah that they come from the outside. Oh. Do you think the kitsch term somehow can make people more, uh, more um, what's the word, can make them resist the social pressure? Definitely. Better. How so? Uh, because they learn that they don't have to artify pieces. Right. It's not so easy for everyone to know that. Yeah. So if you can, if you are released from your your anxiety to follow the art rules, then you are free to release that energy into actual creating good work. Yes, definitely. Yeah. But I also think that the problem is that a lot of people who go into painting today have that are are people, uh, to put it in another way, I think that there are a lot of potential painters today who don't become painters. Right. Because it's so alien for them, the whole uh, narrative, the whole belief system in painting that you should uh, show, um, you should uh, show your own feelings or you should express yourself and at the same yeah. time you should um, you should be uh, a representative of your time, all those things. Uh, probably a lot of people, potential painters, don't become painters because of that scenery. Like right. people who become movie makers, for example. Mm. They are not interested in expressing themselves. Right, no, no. So maybe a lot of movie makers could be potential painters. Given the premise that the storytelling is the most important thing. Yes. Right. But connected with this is the attitude, should you say, uh, among so-called conservative critics. People who, who uh, are supposedly stand for so-called traditional values, um, but I find that they very often spend a lot of time doing PR for the things that they apparently don't like. Mm, yes, that's the whole... Uh that is how conservative critics express themselves today. Yeah. In general. The, the modernists or whatever you want to call them, the establishment, they do something and then the conservative critics react to it. Right. That's the whole system. And uh, no matter if you like Jordan Peterson, for example, or not, it's a fact that his entire orb has been built upon reactions to the society, not by coming with any of his own thoughts, well, the cleaning your room thing. Well, he has done that as well, but his whole fame has become as yeah, a reaction. Yeah, reacting to those laws. Yeah, right, yes. right, 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 right. Which means that they are always one step ahead. Yeah. It's like a chess right. game. Okay. And you don't win a chess game if you always respond to the other opponent's moves. You win 
if you make your own attacks. So there's a strange connection here between the idea of beauty where you're creating passive pictures and your state of mind being passive. Yes, yes, there is a strange connection. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the, re the, the, the problem I have with these so-called uh, conservative critics. They, they have valid points as well, but the problem is that all the, uh, what's the word? Uh, they like too much to, to uh, uh, talk about how bad the situation is. They don't see or don't say, look at those people making these paintings here. Look at that composer there. Look at these writers mm. here. Exactly. So they don't lift it up. And so you get this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy that also uh, is based on thinking like uh, you know, the, the art consensus tells you to think. Exactly. And Odd, Odd is one of the only ones that has had a very clear vision of what he wants. Yeah. And that is very rare to see in the classical figurative world. They will only say, oh, we should be allowed to do this and that. And, and they don't have a clear alternative to what painting should be. No. It's only, well, there's some portraits. Well, isn't, the, isn't there a problem generally with uh, classical figurative painters waiting again passively for anointment? It's not, it seems to me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that uh, oftentimes they are not really concerned with changing the structure, but just to be accepted by the structure. You see the same phenomenon in uh, typical late 19th century, you know, with the radical uh, realists coming in that just paint raw reality, mm. and that's so, so brave. And from the first mint they make their own exhibitions but that's because they are not accepted in the royal yeah. state exhibitions yes, yes. so what they want is not to create something else and this is just shit they want acceptance from that which they supposedly revolt against yeah. the, in norway second year of this so-called uh, uh, reaction uh, exhibition uh, the fall exhibition second year they are on state sponsorship mm. So, and I think this is the, you're, you're talking about the, the whole idea of the foundational philosophical principles of morale, what you accept and what you do not accept. How do you accept to be, be treated and what do you think is your right? Yeah, well, you know, to quote uh, Machiavelli, not directly uh, anyways, but uh, Machiavelli says that oh, to be a prince, and who is the prince? It's of course yourself. At least that's how you can use the book, by yeah. always changing out the word prince to yourself. Mm. He says that uh, the prince, of course, has to be cruel to keep his power, but he mustn't forget why he's prince in the first place. Right. He's prince to do something that he thinks it's good. Otherwise, he, you can just change him out with a new despot. Yeah. So when a painter purposely makes bad work to fit into the art system, he's even worse than one of the brutal princes Machiavelli <laughs> described. Yeah. He's completely amoralic. Right. Uh, I remember once you were talking about how 
a figurative painter often would act going into a gallery. Yes, and that's and that is a big problem. That and this this goes uh, way back to our historical talk about uh, the destruction of of superstructures. Because what happened, for example, uh, my, it was actually my father asked an Italian about this, and his answer was very interesting. He asked him how could sculpture and painting vanish so fast in the mm. Dark Ages, mm. and he said the first thing that happened, this was around the time of Constantine and all of that, was that all the places uh, you could say the room for showing your works disappeared. Right. Now, I don't know what that meant in detail, uh, but I can only juxtapose it with our time right. where do you display your paintings today well there's one place which has a monopoly and that's the galleries but the galleries are always also uh, a place where you show art right. where do you show classical works where where do you do that there's no place and then people can say the museum but the museum is not a living space right. it is a place where you collect things that you consider to be finished and over with So the only thing we have are the galleries. Well, uh, some people would say we have the internet now, but I'm, I'm skeptical because you are competing with so much nonsense on the internet. Right. But the only thing you have is the gallery, and they are so eager to get somewhere, to show their work somewhere. So what is the fault that they do when they go into a gallery? To be really specific well, about this. One fault is that they are way too eager to get in somewhere. So they accept ridiculous, um, uh, ridiculous uh, agreements about the commission, where the gallery takes fifty percent of the money, for example. Right. I mean, it's ludicrous. In the, the there's a story about uh, the Bruno Lilleforsch, the Swedish painter, in the beginning of the twentieth century, and he was very annoyed because now the galleries took two percent or something. <laughs> so the times have very changed. Right. Do you see any remedy for that? I mean, the, the gallery I think that, I think that uh, the Renaissance, what happened in the Renaissance was that the painters were never simply painters. There were many things. Michelangelo was an right. architect, a sculptor, painter. Right. He was even an, an interior designer. Yeah. Uh, so I think the one answer is for painters to learn to stand on more legs. Yeah. Because painting is not uh, something that is protected by anyone now. And uh, one time in the Middle Ages, it was the same conditions. Right. So when it, when it comes to uh, understanding the current situation, typical arguments are the thing about um, how popular culture has destroyed or is in the way or capitalism is in the way mm. only judging things from on a superficial val uh, level what's your reaction to that the problem of capitalism uh, well uh, I mean uh, if you were to make that claim you would have to have uh, historical facts uh, supporting <laughs> that claim and uh, why why? <laughs> well, I, I understand that, uh, I mean, very many young socialists will just swallow that claim immediately because it's part of, part of their agenda. But if you look yeah. at history, I mean, 
capitalism, you could make the case that because under the Calvinism in uh, Holland, Rembrandt was there, and the churches did not commission any paintings anymore. Right. You could make the case that it was the capitalism that saved painting in Amsterdam. Because Amsterdam was a trading city, very much. Uh, uh, actually, very many Danish people were in the Netherlands. They were traveling up and down with timber all the time. Yeah. So uh, almost all the old houses in Amsterdam have oak floors from Norway. Right. So, and, and then you got all these merchants who ordered paintings. Right. So you could say that capitalism saved painting rather than destroyed it. And, and actually, uh, Rembrandt, he was a collector himself. He was, he was actually addicted to it. So right. <laughs> he had the problem there. That even, on the day, uh, the, even on the day his house was uh, forcefully sold, he was bidding on this portrait painting at the auction <laughs> house. <laughs> then he was completely bankrupt. So he had the problem. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, of course, there's also the, the, the problem with not having a name, socially speaking. Uh, one of my favorite painters, of course, is Georges Latour, uh, a painter, a French painter, 17th century. And uh, they say about him that perhaps one third of his work is lost because he didn't have a name. Yeah. And of course, that means the paintings were not valuable, seen as valuable. So obviously, if you see a painting as a very expensive commodity, you will want to take care of it. <laughs> yes, but, but there, is, there is another side to this. And that is, what about the two thirds that were saved? And this goes for Rembrandt too, because mm. Rembrandt was completely unknown for at least 200 years. Vermeer too. Yeah. I mean, uh, speaking about the Academy and the Saloon in Paris, I mean, none of those guys had any idea of who Vermeer was or Caravaggio. Maybe one or two of them had heard about right. Rembrandt. They right. had, but who cares about them? Uh. And then comes this guy Manet, who's a sort of makes a revolt. And he wants to paint like Velasquez. Right, right, right. No one at the Academy wants to paint like Velasquez. Right. So, and then is the question, who took care of Rembrandt? Who took, who took care of George Latour? That was, uh, well, actually I know who took, partly who took care about Rembrandt. There was uh, actually a lot of Germans, some strange uh, noblemen. Mm who got it and well, this was strange, this was interesting. And actually most of the painting names, uh, most of the names, the titles of Rembrandt's paintings are created by these strange uh, collectors who didn't know what the paintings were about. Right. Bathing woman and the Jewish bride and night guard. That has nothing to do <laughs> with actually the night guard's title, real title would be probably the Amsterdam militia. Right, right, right. So all you, the, the answers are in the names of how forgotten Rembrandt was. Right. But after all, I'm, I'm, quite pos I'm quite an optimist also in this era, because after all, two thirds of George Latour's paintings were preserved by someone. Right, right, right. Just like the Medici saw that Brunelleschi was a talented man, even if he was outside the guild, there are and there have been and there will be some people who see and they will save the world. <laughs> <laughs> what is funny about that?
<laughs> because it's true. Yes. <laughs> I was expecting a tear. Yeah. But the laughter is uh, as as well. <laughs> well, isn't that the Buddha technique? You laugh when it comes to the, to the end. I don't know. Okay. I think we should just cut there. Yeah. Um, no, just save the world. I, I was thinking <laughs> we were starting to get into Jesus or something like that. <laughs> so uh, but actually, you know, um, Jesus is uh, perhaps not the guy to save painting. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Do you think Muhammad could save painting? No, uh, I think that the strange eccentric noblemen save paintings. Right. Not prophets. The prophets have a way too big ego. So you need profit and not prophets. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the punchline. Uh, this will be the Thank you for coming to the cable. Thank you.